Well, we're going to commence our series now in the book of Romans. Um, Romans is a, a very interesting book. Um, I think it was Sam who mentioned yesterday that there's not a lot of narrative, not much in the way of stories that you find in the, in the book of Romans, but there's an awful lot of theology. And, um, and I, for my sins, I think, have decided to kick off with chapter one, which is quite a tough chapter at any rate, as I'm sure some of you have already uh, found out, having read it, or I asked you to read it if you could. But uh, either way, we'll, we'll talk about it together. Now, we'll just, before we kick straight into uh, chapter one, I just want to talk a little bit about what Romans is all about, in fact. Now, Romans is probably um, generally recognized as the foremost, uh, the most concise account of the Christian gospel that is contained in the Bible. Of course, nowhere else can you find such a, a detailed written insight into the nature and the, and the purpose of the gospel. The one thing that Romans does do is it describes in graphic detail the hopelessness of man's condition without God. And that's something which is something we can look at and find God's heart for us as a, as a people that follow him. Now, when we look at Romans, there's so much in it. The, simp the simplicity of the whole gospel uh, can be summarized by just looking at a few uh, selected verses from across the book. I've sometimes heard somebody refer this to the, as the Roman road to salvation. And it's a, a useful path to commit to memory in case you have a, an unsaved friend that you want to show something of the way to salvation. So here, here's the path. Firstly, and we're going to use little, little snippets from the whole of Romans here. No one can meet God's standards. No one. But Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Secondly, the cost of rejecting God's gift is very high. And when we look at Romans again, we see that Romans 6 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thirdly, God loved us before we ever knew him. And Romans 5 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then we see that faith in Jesus that is genuine and confessed will guarantee God's full and complete forgiveness. And Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. And what's more, Romans tells us that we can be assured of absolute forgiveness from God. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No condemnation. 
completely forgiven. And finally, on this Roman road, this, these few verses that we picked out of here, it provides a new way of life and a new way of thinking. And Romans 12.1 affirms this. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of the Lord. So in it, you can see, we can pick out verses from the whole of Romans, which would show somebody the way through to salvation, from recognizing their condition before God and their need of him, and through to that point of a changed life. But let's start at the beginning of the book uh, and consider just a little bit of the background to the way that Romans has been written. Now Romans was written by the Apostle Paul in a period probably about 30 years after Jesus had been crucified. To our knowledge he'd never ever encountered Jesus in real life. He obviously knew about him because he spent uh, approximately two years after Jesus' um, crucifixion vehemently going around trying to eradicate and destroy everything that the believers uh, were doing. In fact, they called the, the followers in that way the way. That was the, that was the, the uh, they didn't call them Christians, they called them the way. And what had happened to Paul, he saw that the way, the people that were in it, were multiplying rapidly. Miracles were being performed. People were being healed. Lives were being transformed. And many were turning to this so-called new religion, away from the orthodox uh, religion of Judaism at the time. And of course, Judaism, as we all recognize, was full of legalism, full of political influence. And Paul, being a zealous Judaism, Judaist, <laughs> saw this as a considerable threat to that which he stood for. So what happened to so radically affect this man who was going around trying to destroy everything that Jesus stood for and was what we would call a, a zealous fanatic. Well, Paul was a, a Jewish Pharisee. And even though he was doing all he could to stamp out this new religion, and he was doing all he could too to uh, approve, he, he approved the killing uh, of its followers. And he was attempting to arrest and imprison those who made confession to Jesus. But despite all that, God had other plans for Paul. As you know, Paul was supernaturally confronted by Jesus himself about two years later. He'd been going in through this persecution period for about two years before Jesus actually apprehended him. And he did so, as we all know, on the Damascus Road. 
And that when he was on the way, he was even on his way to go and destroy or try and spoil some more of the followers. So his credentials in Judaism is, had been impeccable. He was a highly educated scholar. He had been born into the tribe of Benjamin. He'd studied under Gamaliel, who was a respected teacher of the law. And in his persuasion uh, pertaining to the law, he'd been a dedicated Pharisee. But now, despite all this background, all this religious teaching, he'd finally met with the living Jesus and discovered the truth. And that had set him on a journey which had lasted 28 years and he's now writing Romans after 28 years of pursuing the gospel of Jesus. Now Paul had already established and nurtured Christian churches in many places throughout Asia Minor. But he had never been to Rome. He's writing to Romans, he's never been there. He did get there eventually, but under slightly different circumstances. So he was writing this letter there to the believers that were there in Rome to ensure that the message they were following was authentic and was accurate. So let's now move into chapter 1, which is the, where we're going to start studying this thing, where Paul announces his new status. And Paul straight away in verse 1 states his standing as a Christian. Verse 1 reads as follows. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Paul literally declares that he considers himself owned by God. He's a servant, he's a slave. And slaves at that time had absolutely no rights at all. They were completely under the domination of their owners in all respects. So we see that Paul considers every believer who had become a Christian should, like him, submit wholly to the Lordship of Jesus and belong completely to God. So there it is, bond, bond servant of Jesus, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. And again, a Christian belongs to God. 1 Corinthians 6, which Paul also wrote, he said, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So you might ask, how could a person be a slave of somebody who was dead? Now clearly Paul knew from that experience on the Damascus road that Jesus was no longer dead. He thought he had been persecuted, somebody who had died on the cross and was gone forever. But he now found out that Jesus indeed had resurrected and was alive. So Paul lived from that point onwards to serve Jesus alone and no other. Everything that Paul had held as truth before, he now discarded. For that he now knew was the real truth. And he later wrote, Indeed, I also count all things, all things as loss 
That includes his education, his status, his reputation, his former standing as a Pharisee, for the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may, get, I may gain Christ. Again, that's written in Philippians. The second thing he said in verse 1 is that he was called to be an apostle. An apostleship in those days was exclusively for those who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and was confined to the disciples that had actually been there when they had seen Jesus taken up into heaven. Now likewise, apostles were given the power to govern and teach the churches around them, to speak and write the words of God that uh, were ultimately to become the last authoritative words of, of scripture and doctrine. That was the, the, the raison d'etre of, of, of the apostle. Now Paul may not have witnessed Jesus' resurrection and he'd been violently opposed to everything that Jesus had taught but he'd been stopped in his tracks by Jesus himself who told him, I've appeared to you for this purpose and we read of this in Acts, I've appeared to you in this purpose to make you a minister and a witness both of the things that you have seen and of the things I will yet reveal to you. Paul was commissioned to go and work on behalf of Jesus. And thirdly, he was separated to the gospel of God, so that his sole purpose in life was to live, tell, and glorify Jesus through good news to all, through the good news, telling the good news to all men. Now in the middle section of, of chapter one, Paul teeps, uh, talks of his deep desire to uh, visit the believers in Rome and of his hope to see them in person. But meanwhile, he assures them of his constant prayers for them and for their welfare and his desire to pass on to them some spiritual gift. We don't really know what that gift is. And in fact, we were talking about it only yesterday morning with, with, with Sam um, and the people that were at the Waffle Church. What was the gift that um, Paul wanted to impart to them? And we don't really know what that is. But one thing Paul does do is he he declares his confidence in the provision of God through the good news of the gospel. And he says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. We then go on to a pretty hard portion of this chapter, and it deals with ungodly behavior. Chapter 1 concludes with a, a very detailed condemnation of ungodliness and disobedience that's evident in all human behaviour at this time and indeed is prevalent in society today. And Paul makes it very clear what God feels about such matters. And I'm going to read read that portion to you and I'll hope that you can follow it on here I'm going to leave out some I'm going to start with uh, verse 18 of chapter 1 follow it with me would you please for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And then we go on to verse 24, and because the verses in between talk about idol worship, which I don't think we're into this, this, uh, this, in this era. Although maybe some may be worshipping their cars and various objects that uh, are precious to them. So from verse 24 onwards, Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonour their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due and even as they did not like to retain God sorry and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Today's secular society, and even some Christian churches, hold very liberal opinions concerning the validity of these matters and are very accepting of them. But the question I ask is God. Their argument is that a God of love wouldn't deny two persons of, say, the same gender the comfort of human solace as found in a normal heterosexual marriage relationship that God had instigated. But indeed, God is love. And he is loving. But he still rejects all sin. And not just that portion on homosexuality that is alluded to in the passage that uh, we just read together. But it's amongst all the other unrighteous things 
that human society gets up to these days. And it's obvious from what was said there, God has no desire that any should fall foul of the judgment that he will impose upon those that choose to go that way and ignore his gift of salvation. Apostle Peter says, um, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now Jesus welcomes all that come to him. Did I, I said it, all who comes to him. No one is rejected, not one. Doesn't matter what they've done before, Jesus will welcome them, but he wants change. So therefore Jesus has given us an example as to what our reaction should be to such people. We need always to put our own feelings aside and consider what would Jesus do in these circumstances? How would he react to these people? Now remember, Jesus had mixed with tax collectors, prostitutes, religious hypocrites, even plain adulterers. In fact, there was no sector of society, note that, no sector of society that Jesus wouldn't associate with. However, as, welcome as he, welcoming as he was to them, in no circumstance can I read anywhere in the Bible of him telling it was okay to continue what they were doing. For example, the woman that was taken in adultery, that, that story there. Jesus didn't condemn her, but he instead told her to go and don't do it again. And he did that with everyone. He accepted the person but he told them to cease the practice that God hated. And Jesus wants us to follow his example, to be the same as he is in those circumstances. That is to welcome everybody. No matter what their background is, no matter how much they have done things which we may thoroughly dislike, Jesus would have welcomed them, and we must too. Now that doesn't mean we accept what they do. But it does mean that we've got to show them Jesus' love and show them the gift of salvation that God offers. We've got to welcome everyone. And just as Jesus did, we've got to love the person. Because why? Hatred, violence, or abuse of any other human being has no part in Christianity, no part at all. We can't stand there and abuse them for what they've done. God is the one that does the judging. We don't have to like what they do, nevertheless. So true repentance means turning from all former practices that are offensive to God in order to embrace a, a new life under the Lordship of Christ. A Christian committed to Jesus like Paul 
becomes a radically new creature. We are very different when we accept Jesus. He changes us from the inside. And we've got to be like him in all that we do. And we've become, just like Paul, servants, slaves to a wonderful master. And that's where we've got to hold on to it. So just in summary, Romans provides us with a concise theological base for the gospel message. Romans alone can provide a succinct pathway that reveals the nature of man, his need for God, and how he can receive forgiveness. But to be a Christian means submitting our lives into his ownership, into God's ownership. We're not our own. We're bought with a price, remember. And we're always to accept the person, just as Jesus did. But that in no way means we should approve of any ungodly practice, whatever it might be. In other words, we should welcome and love the person, but avoid the practice of all that the Bible defines as sin. It's not our word, it's not our judgment, it's God's. That's what God says about these things. That's the standard by which we work. Amen? Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Father, we, we submit to your Lordship in our lives. You apprehended us just as you apprehended Paul at one moment in time. And we recognised our lives were worthless without you being part of it. And we surrendered to your Lordship. And now, Father, we, we just want you to continue to work in us, to change us, to make us more like you. We don't want to be in any way holier than anybody else, Lord. We just want to be people that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. People that have been saved from the, the wrath of God to come. Lord, you're a holy God. You're a righteous God. And we're to be a holy people. And Lord, we are to love as you love and to deal with people as you deal with them. Help us, Lord, in our weaknesses. Help us to see things your way and to follow your principles and bring glory to your name in all that we do. Amen.